0: Hello, and welcome to the Intersection Education Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Haley. Now, this is our 50th episode, and to celebrate, we have a very special guest, someone who inspired this podcast and many of the guests that we have featured. It's none other than my friend, Dr. Simon Breakspear. Now, Simon's a researcher, advisor, and speaker on educational leadership, policy, and change. He's the executive director of the global consultancy Agile Schools, and research fellow at the University of New South Wales Gonski Institute for Education. He's also the creator of Learning Sprints, which is an open-source teacher learning approach used by thousands of educators across the planet to enhance their expertise and impact. And we get into this quite in depth, so I think you're going to learn a lot about it. Now, Simon's work has had a big impact on me and my school, and I really know that you're going to learn from our conversation. Now, if you do like that conversation, connect with us. Intersection Education. You can go to our website, intersectioneducation.com, follow us on Twitter at IntersectionEd, or even on Facebook. And we really appreciate it when you rate us on iTunes and leave a review. Here's my conversation with Dr. Simon Breakspear. Welcome to the Intersection Education podcast, Dr. Dr. Simon Breakspear. How are you today?
1: I'm doing very well, Corey. Good to be with you.
0: Yeah, I'm great to have you on. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Let's just put it that way. Um, do you know what? Let's, let's get into it. And I'd like to start by talking about teacher expertise. Uh, this is a subject that uh, I know you are quite passionate about and you've thought deeply about. Um, I'd like to start with why you think it's so important that we're talking about teacher expertise.
1: Yeah, terrific, Corey. And, um, it's great to be joining you. Uh, me here in Sydney, Australia, in the middle of winter, so it's about sixteen degrees here. So it's a it's a cold one for us. I'm not sure whether that quite counts as cold in Canada, but um, look, for a while, both as a former high school teacher in school leadership, and then now as a researcher working with schools, the one thing we hear all the time is. Um, you know, the number one factor in improving student learning within the school is the quality of the teacher. We say, terrific, that's great. Um, Who could could disagree with that, both from our personal experience, from the data? But then we start thinking about, well, okay, the quality of teaching is the number one factor. Uh, How do we um, try to improve that over time? Uh, So often we start getting into a discussion about how are we going to get teachers to change what they do, Uh, do a little bit more of this or do a little bit less of this. And I actually think, talking about practice change uh, is not actually all that helpful when we're talking about teacher quality. And I want to start saying, let's move away from a discussion uh, about practice change or just teacher quality in general, teaching quality in general, and start talking about what is the driver of quality teaching, and that is teacher expertise. Uh, and for me, teacher expertise undergirds the capacity of teachers to make the right decision at the right time to move learning forward. Uh, and so uh, I really want to start to say that we need to enrich the discussion about quality teaching by talking about teacher expertise, being able to identify teacher expertise, and then, of course, start to build the structures, the processes, and the cultures in schools to enable all teachers every year to enhance their levels of expertise.
0: I hear that as well, but I'm still sometimes thinking that there are people who, who, who perhaps haven't identified some of those areas of teacher expertise. And I'd love you to maybe Talk about that. What do you believe those elements are when we're talking about increasing teacher expertise? What are some of the aspects that perhaps need to be present for teachers to improve? And 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 all of this, of course, leading to, as you said, you know, increasing student learning. Um, we know that teachers are the most important um, piece of uh, leading to student learning. So maybe let's get back to that because I think people are sometimes lost about identifying or maybe. Uh, understanding the elements of teacher expertise.
1: Yeah, great. So, look, if you don't mind, I, I might just start with you know a quick you know, twenty-second uh, cognitive science of expertise. Uh, so sometimes I, I say to teachers, you know, where is your expertise held? And they look at me a little bit like, uh, what do you mean? Some of them hold their hearts, which I kind of love. And it's, you know, it's a nice way to think. I said, well, no, actually, your expertise isn't held in your heart. Uh, where is it? And some of them sort of grab their heads. And I guess I guess it's in my brain. I said, I, I know. But often when we talk about teacher practice, we talk about and we think about in our minds "I, you know, what is a teacher doing and where is she moving or what is he saying? But we've actually got to realize that expertise is, of course, stored in the brain. And uh, expertise is about uh, building up uh, long-term uh, knowledge and skills that start to become mental models or schemas in your long-term memory. And the incredible thing about people with expertise is because they've built up these, um, these mental models in their mind with long-term memory, that over time what, allows them, what it allows them to do is to make the right decision at the right time almost instantaneously. Um, if I give you a really non-education example, Corey, about expertise, um, I'm not sure whether you've had the same trip from work to home for a while. Um, but what often happens if you've had that same trip from work to home for a while or vice versa, sometimes you can end up at your desk or in your classroom and say, Oh wow, how did I get here today? And of course, you know, you drove, but the thing is, you have no memory of it. You, you kind of were thinking about other things, solving things for the, for the day. And because you'd done that trip so many times, actually you've built up this mental model. In this, in, in this case, a cognitive map of your, of your trip. And actually, it's amazing. The brain can make fast, intuitive, complex decisions almost without any effort once it starts to build up that mental model. Uh, but you'll know that same person driving from home to uh, maybe a, a workshop or a professional learning opportunity in another place. Suddenly, they're going to have to try to make, uh, you know, put a huge amount of effort into thinking, uh, where am I up to? What's the next turn? They might be checking their Google Maps or other things. So let me apply that to teaching. Um, There's some areas of our teaching where we have really well-developed mental models. Uh, We've been here before. Uh, We understand the progressions of learning. We understand the type of assessment evidence that would help us know where students are up to. We have some pedagogical knowledge and skills that have been built up, and those things come together. So expert teachers in certain domain areas, they can make the right call at the right time to move learning forward. But we'll know areas where we don't yet have sufficient levels of expertise because actually uh, we're often really working very hard to work out where are those kids up to in their learning? and How do I know where they're up to and uh, what are the options for moving learning forward? So I think we've all had experiences where we have deep expertise. Uh, we all have experiences where we'd like to further enhance our expertise. And I guess my real interest is to start to say this is not about evaluation of teachers. This is not about judgment of teachers. This is about saying every educator should get a chance to continually enhance their expertise. Uh, and maybe we could dig into you know, some of the components of what that might look like.
0: Absolutely. And so that's that's what I want to get into next. I mean, you talk about developing mental models in the brain. And you talk about, you don't talk about this, but I I kind of talk about um, automaticity. So how do we make it so that you can make that right call to improve learning at the right time? And it's just kind of flows. You've got that. Because I know that I've lived some experience where I thought that that was, you know, putting a group of teachers together to work collaboratively, and they would just work these things out. They would share their own learning. They would uh, maybe share or develop or research some new mental models. They would increase their expertise. But um, the thing is, (laughs) I I learned pretty quickly that just putting them together which is often the, the narrative, right? We just put teachers together, mm-hmm, they'll, mm-hmm. they'll do this. I learned pretty quickly that, that it wasn't enough. Um, just, just giving them time to collaborate, to improve their craft, it, it didn't quite work. And, and yeah. they got lost. And so that's why I'd like to introduce this idea of maybe your response to, to that problem or that reality where collaboration is perhaps not quite enough.
1: Yeah, good call. So, look, first I want to say is education systems, uh, we're doing a lot better than we were a decade ago in investing in adult learning and teacher learning. You know, if you think about the amount of collaboration time in your school, your district system now, even if you'd like more, I bet it's more now than it was 10 years ago. Uh, I bet there's more opportunities to engage with research than there were 10 years ago. And I want to say number one, um, you know, kudos and respect to the school and system leaders who have started to carve out funding and support for more time for teachers to work together. They've started to elevate uh, teacher experience and opportunities for sharing. And I want to say uh, that was a necessary but insufficient step in getting us to uh, elevating expertise. And I think, Corey, like you, I mean, I was a bit surprised. I, I think I would have just said, more time for teachers to get together, more encouragement to share practice equals improvement. And it was close. But what I started to learn when I got into the literature about expertise, and the expertise literature, of course, is in education, but actually, it's much more developed outside education. And there's been a number of people, particularly Anders Ericsson, whose core I the psychological work has been about expert performance. There's people who have developed a real understanding of how do we improve, uh, how do people in all sectors uh, actually develop expertise. And there's really one answer to it, which is nice. It's not all that complicated, and it's called deliberate practice. And the evidence is really quite clear that uh, whether you want to get better as a surgeon, whether you want to get better on the football field, uh, whether you want to get better as a pianist, as a chef, as a teacher, there is a key underlying process that we need to move through, and that is called deliberate practice. And what I've understood is that what we've done in some ways in schools is we've got the structure available in the collaboration time. We've got the, t- the, the team and deliberate practice is often best done in a social environment. But what we haven't given people is an appropriate process, a process that would allow teachers to move through cycles of deliberate practice and therefore enhance and elevate their expertise in one small piece at a time.
0: Right. And I think that that's what we were getting to and that's what, what, what we've kind of lived. Um, how, so how, let's, let's get into this new process. So, um... I'll give away a little bit of the ending, but I know that one of the things that you've developed is this process called learning sprints. Maybe walk us through what um, what the elements of that process might be or how you have gone around perhaps organizing or focusing the process for deliberate practice.
1: Yeah, terrific. Thank you. And,
0: you know, one of the things
1: I'd say, Corey, I I never planned to work on this, to be honest. A lot of my my research work had been on international benchmarking and school system reform. Uh, uh, Most of my professional work was to do with school leadership development and remains that way. But, you know, the number one thing that school leaders need to do and district and system leaders need to do is to find out ways to support their teachers to learn. And so I suddenly realized that if I was really going to support leaders in their work, That I needed to help leaders lead teacher learning. And and that led me down this path of saying, well, why is it that we've uh, been investing in these processes and a whole range of things have been around for a while, forms of collaborative inquiry and uh, forms of PLC? And why was it that we weren't getting cut through? And that led me to this analysis of, well, we actually weren't learning from the literature and expertise development and deliberate practice. So you said before that I developed something. I'll, I'll be totally honest. Uh, I've been kind of driving it from an academic framework perspective, but I've had the, the real thrill of, of working um, uh, with educators around the world. And it's been a co-design process. And uh, Corey, you know, I, I appreciate personally the, the work that you've uh, done Uh, alongside me and my team to to try to think through how do we take some of the theoretical ideas and and make it live in the real world. Um, So basically, here's the answer. Uh, Deliberate practice has three bits. Number one, it requires you to think differently. So deliberate practice will require you to think differently, step outside of your uh, business or practice as usual. It'll require you to decide on something that's small and outside your zone of, um, so your, your, your current repertoire uh, sort of would be in your zone of proximal development, I guess educators might use, but it's outside of your current repertoire, and that you start to identify what practice activities you're, you're going to try out. So the first one is about thinking differently. This is often done by reading and engaging with high-quality uh, thinking, uh, by talking with peers, and then deciding on something very specific you're going to work on. Uh, Step two in a deliberate practice cycle is about the practicing. It's about the doing. It's about doing differently. And this requires us to pick a small part of our work, not all of it, where we're engaging in deliberate and intentional practice activities and receiving some peer uh, observation. And if we do have people who are expert in that area, also um, being open to receiving some feedback about improving our work. And then the third step in deliberate practice is to reflect differently. It's to review. Uh, We are very poor at learning from experience naturally. And so we have to put aside some time and some structure to review our practice activities and consider, did we improve in the way that we were planning to and what was the impact of that? So that's true if you want to get better at cooking. Uh, Corey, you and I could pull some books together. We could say, Hey, we want to be better chefs in this area. And it's very likely uh, in our prepare stage to think differently. We've got to stop cooking as usual. And we might say, look, let's get some input from some good cookbooks. Let's go to Jamie Oliver or someone else who's made good thinking easy for people like us to get a head around. And it'd be also good for us to seek out some experts in the area. Who, who's a good chef in this area? A, a friend of ours, who's clearly better than we are. Let's invite them in to push our thinking and then let's choose a small part of our cooking practice that we're going to have a go at this month. And so over the next month, it's not going to be every time we cook, but you know, around the busyness of being working dads and, uh, and doing our life, we, we find little parts of our cooking that we are deliberately trying to get better at. Maybe it's a recipe or two, maybe it's just, I don't know, how we cut the vegetables, no matter what recipe we're, we're working on. And then lastly, we should come back and review. We review did our, did our sort of practices improve in the areas that we wanted? But also, how's the food tasting? Like, uh, are we having the impact that we wanted from that work? Now, I kind of use that playful example around cooking, but I think it's important to say that the learning sprints process has been built for educators. But, you know, the three steps that it tries to translate from the deliberate practice literature, you could apply it to, no, to any area of life. Uh, but for education, we're asking people to prepare, work out a small part of their craft that they want to get better at to sprint, which is the small, uh, you know, manageable process of practicing that in part of their teaching over up to about a month, one to four weeks, and then getting together again with a team and reviewing, giving yourself a chance to learn from experience. And if I connect that back to the, the cognitive science discussion we started with, what you're actually doing is you're learning and you're updating your mental models from that experience. That really is what deliberate practice is all about. Learning experience is just try to make it real and doable for Hardworking educators.
0: Absolutely. One of the things that I think uh, another person might say or might challenge you on is the social nature. Um, You keep saying that, yes, oftentimes our learning is social. You talk a bit about the importance of peer observation and feedback. What would you say to someone who said, no, I actually think that I can do all these things on my own. What do you say the value is in doing this in a group setting with others? Yeah, terrific.
1: Well, number one, um, you know, all power to you if you're one of those people, Corey, um, that uh, feels like uh, that you have the motivation, you have the discipline to um, deconstruct a certain domain area, work out what you're going to work on, that you make a commitment and you follow through. And then after following through, you challenge yourself. You make sure you don't fall under confirmation, fall into confirmation bias and you really analyze whether or not what you did made things better. And if you're one of those people, uh, I am so happy for you. But the 99% of the rest of us, hardworking educators with busy lives and families. Um, You know, we're the kind of humans that make really, really good commitments and sometimes find it hard to follow through. Uh, We're the kind of people who, you know, would love to do hard thinking, but often if we're on our own and we're tired and we're exhausted, we find it hard to do. Uh, And we are the kind of humans that fall into confirmation bias where we just see what we were hoping to see. So what am I thinking here? You see, the reason why we learn in groups is that the groups can help us do more rigorous work to sustain our motivation and to help us make sure that the things that we committed to, we actually follow through on. So it is possible, I guess, in some ways to get better without others. Um, I just think you're going to get make it um, a much easier to get better, faster and sustain that over time if you go with others. So in the prepare phase, you know, how do I... You know, how do I get out of autopilot? Well, I could think my way into that, but it's much better to engage in disciplined dialogue where, Corey, you might challenge me in ways that I'd never think about. You're asking, are you sure the pattern of data leads you to that conclusion? Or, hey, Simon, ha- have you read this new research in this area? I- I'm wondering whether that actually confirms or maybe even challenges what we've been talking about. So in the prepare phase, other people help us to um, open up to new thinking, uh, to break out of autopilot. And then in the doing phase, uh, it's a little bit like um, if someone's ever been part of a book club, uh, you always know if someone's about to go to book club because they're madly reading the chapter for that week. Yep. And the funniest <laughs> is, like, they're madly reading the chapter for the week, but they're the one even who chose this text. <laughs> and. You say, oh, it's because humans often make great commitments and they find it hard to follow through. So when we're sprinting or deliberately practicing, having our peers help us through peer responsibility to do the things we said we do. Um, Hey, you know, my colleagues are are finding time to do this. We're about to check in with each other. That that pushes me to find that motivation to do my part. And then in the review, uh, you know, you and I have talked before, Corey, about – you know, the, the 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 behavioral economic kind of analyses of different cognitive biases. And one of them is confirmation bias. We have a tendency to see the things we are expecting to see. And so I need my colleagues to help break out of that Ask challenging questions, offer alternative hypotheses, so that I have the chance to really work out: did what I do have the impact, um, or might there be the other ways of doing that? So, as I said, if you're if you're one of the amazing people who could do it, all power to you. But for the rest of us humans, I reckon deliberate practice is a group endeavour.
0: Yeah, that's that's a great, great kind of uh, feedback or a great kind of response to the to to someone. Who who is really looking? Because uh, I think that there is a little bit of this lone wolf idea in teaching. So no, I really I really do appreciate. Hey, but that. what
1: about this? Like maybe Corey, there's there's the kind of um, people who really just they don't see teaching as a team sport right now. And they say, leave me alone. I want my class and I just do my job. But hey, maybe there's a bunch of people who'd be open to it. But because of the the, the lack of process and structure and rigor yeah. that they've been given in their teacher collaboration time, um, maybe they've actually learned that sometimes collaboration doesn't result in improvement. Mm-hmm. And I really, you know, I empathize with that. And what I'd say to those people is... Um, it may well be that collaboration isn't the best way to improve, but an alternative hypothesis is that if you had the right process to have discipline, dialogue, focus, work, um, maybe actually with the right process, uh, you'd have a different experience of that collaboration and you'd have an experience that convinces you to shift that 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 general claim of collaboration isn't the right You know, process for improvement and say collaboration with the right tools, the right norms may well be you know a really powerful approach.
0: I'm interested to know what you have seen when this process goes well. You have the wonderful opportunity, as you said, to co-create this and to speak with people who are experiencing success. When they talk about the effect of this and what has is meant for their schools, what kind of things do they say?
1: Yeah. So this is this is why I get to do the work, right? This is why we make it open source and we've got schools that I've worked personally with for multiple years now. We've got schools that I've never met personally who are fully implementing the model and I get to hear their stories and their case studies. Um and you know, I, I guess a couple of things. I mean, the first things people people thing is so the first thing that people say is often um this has been the missing piece in our collaboration time so they start to realize that actually they can collaborate and improve and it wasn't a lack of motivation or a lack of goodwill or trust it was just a missing process so it's always a joy that actually they were they were so close right and they just needed this one piece and suddenly it all kind of activates um i hear people talk about how They appreciate that when they feel overwhelmed and overloaded, that the sprints process says, hey, it's okay if you want to make this really small. In fact, we kind of encourage you to make it smaller than you're willing to do. And they say to me that uh, what was nice about it is rather than having to be really motivated on the front end to do big, heavy lifting and hard work, sprints allowed them to take a little micro action, like just something small, reasonable, try something out. And then they said, as they started to get some impact, what they noticed is actually, oh, i have made some progress. And as they identified that progress, they actually got a bit motivated. And then they started to talk to each other about doing something a little bit harder. So I think the second thing I hear a lot is people are saying, hey, uh, this is working because it understands how overloaded we feel. And um, it, it understands that motivation often comes by getting into the work and making some progress. And this process doesn't make them feel guilty or, or push them to necessarily uh, have to have high levels of motivation as a prerequisite uh, to get started. And I think the third thing they feel is um, actually we as teachers, uh, this process um, really starts to um, highlight and celebrate and elevate teacher expertise. And they're saying it actually by engaging in this process, it's starting to change the the conversations in the school. Uh, not so much into, um, you know, oh, if you teach this way, Corey, and you're doing well, well, you know, you know, Simon better start teaching more like Corey. Uh, well, actually, no. It's about saying um, teaching is adaptive expertise. It's complex and it's relational. And sprints lets people think it through. Like I said, what's the simplest thing that Sprints tries to do is it says, slow things down a little bit in a small area and let teachers think it through, make explicit what they're trying to do, and then try it out and then talk about whether it worked. And as we slow it down and we bring visibility to incredible decisions that teachers make, uh, and sometimes they make different decisions, and those different decisions are the right call at the right time. Uh, We start to really elevate that that conversation about expertise and expertise is not that we all do the same thing at the same time because teaching is complex relational. It's not going to work that way, Um, but we can all begin to um, open up uh, the hidden secrets of our own teaching practice uh, and start to bring that to the team and start to not only be challenged, but also celebrate um, some of the most remarkable complex human work that happens on the planet. And that is how these incredible educators make the right call at the right time uh, to move learning forward. So there's some of the things that we hear when people uh, do the hard work of starting to embed this, not as a one-off sprint. Oh, you know, we sprinted last year. That's good. What are you doing now? Oh, no, that was last year. No, but when they start to make this into a regular routine of professional growth.
0: As you were speaking, it, it really reminded me of one of my favorite lines of all time in education. And I've heard you said it you say it first, and that was that that education needs to be rigorous and human. Uh, and you kind of touched on many elements of that and And I can't let you go before before I let I give you the chance to to maybe talk about this line. when you're saying that school improvement, School in general needs to be both rigorous and human. If we enter into this idea of increasing teacher expertise, we need to have a balance between those two aspects. What are you saying?
1: Yeah, thanks. And I think it first came out of my mouth at uh, at a a conference in Alberta at ULead uh, a couple of years ago. And I was kind of thinking, what am I going to say to these people? And I was thinking, well, look, why don't I just think about the lessons learned of a couple of years in this work? And I was trying to think, you know, what is the what is the the, the tension that the schools I've been working through, uh, working with, are trying to think through? And, and, and I came down to that the tension, it's a very healthy and creative tension, is this idea of rigorous and human. So uh, rigor means like um, learning and in this stage teacher learning. Um, you know, if we just do choose your own adventure, teacher learning, whatever you feel up for today, just kind of have a read, have a chat, share a little bit we're not going to do the hard work of developing expertise. Expertise is hard fought; it's hard one, right?
0: Professional learning by Pinterest, uh, yeah. Oh, exactly. I like,
1: <laughs> you know, uh, oh, let's do this and that. And, you know, it's sort of like, and I don't think that respects or elevates our profession, by the way, right? Expertise is hard one. And whether it's expertise, uh, you know, in the medical field, on the sporting field, musical, we know expertise requires effort. It requires challenge. It requires me moving beyond my current repertoire. And hey, that's true for all learning, right? So I want to say let's not drop the rigor. Uh, and almost nothing that's meaningful in life doesn't have some rigor. So rigor needs to be there. But then I said there's this tension pulling on it. It's called, it's also got to be human. And the human stuff is well, I don't always want to do hard work. Or um, I don't often have the bandwidth right now. I I feel cognitively overloaded Uh, as a, as a former classroom teacher, I think more than cognitive overload, it was the emotional overload. And then you're asking me to engage in something that's hard. And now I've got attention. And I I watch you, Corey, I think you can kind of almost take anything that people are doing and you can say, how have they navigated this tension or have they given up? And so some don't navigate the tension and what they do is they just make it very human. And so, hey, what would you like to do? And if you don't want to team with those people, hey, choose your own team. And if you don't want to work on this area that our data is telling us that we really need to work on, hey, just choose something you're already good at. And it really just overemphasized the human. And you end up getting people being very positive about it. Thanks very much. But what they're really saying is, thanks for just letting me stay where I was. Uh, and then there's other people and maybe um, us researchers on, on our side of the shop fall into this and we say, oh, it's got to be rigorous. Oh, you've got to read this research article and you need to know that there's these five elements and then within the five elements of these sub points and nothing other than a long nine month inquiry is going to be sufficient. And people go, oh, I kind of get it. But, you know, I don't have the bandwidth for that. And so what I'm interested in is how you can navigate the tension. And in sprints, and all credit to yourself and other educators who've, who've pushed and tested this in the real world, this is field-tested stuff, they've said we can find the middle ground. And the middle ground is this, do something that's rigorous, but do it small. <laughs> I know that seems really simple, but What you can do is you can choose something that's rigorous, that pushes you out of your comfort zone, that that it's going to develop expertise, but you don't have to do it all at once. It's okay to work in small incremental steps. And I think a theory of radical incrementalism, where we work on things that matter, but we're willing to compound those changes over time, that this month I'm going to get a little bit better at teaching place value. Or I'm going to get a little bit better at using this retrieval practice strategy. Or I'm going to get a little bit better at one of Dylan Williams' approaches to formative assessment. And everyone would say, well, that's too small, Simon. You've got to do more. Be more rigorous. And i say, well, wait a second. Um, I'm hoping to have a long career here. And if you let me every month, which is roughly a sprint, get a little bit better at something that was important but small, at the end of this year, you know, I might have got better at six to eight things, like seriously better. And then as I compound that over one year of teaching, two years of teaching, three years of teaching, every kid gets the benefit of that little one month of sprint work that I did a couple of years ago, because the end result of each of those small pieces is not just that student learning was bumped up. That's not the point. I'm trying to bump up and elevate the teacher expertise. And if I bump up and elevate the teacher expertise, if I change what's happening in the teacher's head more so than what I what's happening in the student's head those changes compound, like compound interest, and they add up and they add up. And over a year and then two years and three years and beyond, uh, actually those rigorous but small manageable pieces add up to something. Uh, And the thing that it adds up to is a teacher who can back herself or back himself To take on some of the most challenging learning difficulties. So that's the rigorous and human thing, uh, Corey, um, uh, applied to uh, teacher learning. But as you're doing and others, uh, it's not a bad frame to think about student learning, uh, system change. Hey, maybe even parenting. I don't know. Uh, (laughs) That's an area that I'm definitely a learner in at the moment. But um, yeah, maybe that's useful for your listeners.
0: You bet. I'm going to I'm gonna not challenge you, but I'm I'm gonna. We've only talked You're al- about. you have just
1: <laughs> been talking about. There's no expertise. Yeah, to develop- no,
0: no, no. We've only been talking about positive outcomes. But the reality is, sometimes when even though we've done a bit of research and we've maybe talked to some other um, professionals, some of our colleagues, we decide on a strategy that we think is going to address a-, a problem that we face with our teachers. And do you know what? It doesn't work. It's actually a failure. Talk about that piece. Talk about what we can learn when what we try, our learning sprint, actually doesn't give us meaningful growth. Oh,
1: I love this. So um, here's yeah. the thing. Can I just like admit a huge failure of my own? We could I've got a list, so um, and my and my wife's probably got another another book of these. So there's so many, but here's here's a big thing. Um, I really didn't explain very well, Corey, early on that, that learning sprints was forced, first and foremost about moving the teacher learning, the teacher expertise. Um, you know, it was more focused on the, the changes that were happening in the teacher's brain uh, than in the, the learner's brain. Um, and what then happened is if people tried something, whether in a sprint or not, and then the student learning didn't go up, they said, oh, the sprint didn't work. But you know, Corey, in my own life, uh, as a parent, in, you know, as an academic, or as other things, you know, I got to. I I often learn more. Um, I often update my mental models. If I could go back to that kind of understanding of expertise more through failure than through confirmation through success. And so, you know, the first thing I want to say that often not achieving your result for students in your learning sprint might actually result in a higher dividend of teacher learning. And if you actually think that it's the teacher learning, the shifts in the mental models, the updating of the mental models that will give the best medium to long-term change for student learning, then sometimes we actually have to celebrate that failure. Now, uh, there's different types of failure, by the way. There's, there's blameworthy failure. So if, if there was a pretty clear way of engaging for student learning and we were just a little sloppy... Like we or we didn't really get to the minimum effective dose or we didn't really just get in a little bit earlier to get the differentiation right to check prior knowledge. I want to say that's probably blameworthy failure. I'm not blaming anyone, but uh, I wouldn't celebrate it. For me, it's time to like, okay, let's step up. Let's not miss twice. Let's get that sorted. But I'm really interested in celebrating praiseworthy failure and praiseworthy failure comes when we think well, uh, but then we try to do something complex like teach, um, teaching is complex and relational, and it's never I do this and student learns this. Um, it's we've got a good theory about it, and then we go and take it into the real world. Uh, and I want to say, if you've thought well, and then you went and did it, and you didn't get the result, uh, I want to esteem that effort. I want to um, I want to say that that failure was praiseworthy. Uh, and then what I'm mostly looking for is how you, in a review process, learn from that failure. Um, and if we can uh, not create kind of a naive view of any failure is good, but failure when people go after hard learning challenges, they apply the best thinking and they don't get it. They say, wow, we must be working on something complex. Aren't we lucky to work in some of the most um, challenging and complex kind of work there is, which is somehow using this thing we call teaching uh, to enable this process called learning that results in our desire of human development development. Uh, and i got to tell you, if that's the, the craft that you've committed to, um, you should expect a lot of times where good thinking and and focused action doesn't get you the result you wanted. It's not your fault. It's just the world's a bit more complex than we thought. And we'll learn from that and have another go
0: absolutely and and teaching is that complex, which makes it worthy, which makes it exciting, and what makes it worth doing. I absolutely agree you want to want to get into a couple recommendations from you because uh, I know that you're uh, you 're a person on the go who 's uh, always interested in things and reading and, uh, and, and and just experiencing the worlds in different ways. I think other people might be interested to see. Um, first of all, what is a what is an app, or what's maybe a website, or maybe a, another media film that you're you're liking right now, or you're interested in?
1: You know, um, one of the things, Corey, when you're really interested in ideas, is sometimes it's really hard to calm the mind, mm-hmm. and. Uh, recently I've been trying a couple of things. If you talk about apps, um, you know, um, if I'm traveling or, uh, just transitioning back to home, trying to be more, more present. So I've been trying two apps, one of them, uh, Headspace, which a lot of people would know, which kind of started as a mindfulness app, but there's a whole range of just kind of guided activities in there. Um, and I'm finding it really helpful, uh, cause I'm, I'm kind of not very good at calming my own mind, just kind of the practice of using one of their eight to 10 minute, and Pieces, particularly if I'm transitioning back home or trying to transition out of work. So I would recommend the Headspace app.
0: Awesome. Uh, do you have? And I know you've got a few, but do you have a book that you that you like that you quote or that you you that's really making you think right now?
1: Yeah, it's a couple, but I reckon the education book I have been is the wonderful Vivian Robinson from the University of Auckland. Uh, wrote a nice little short book called Less Change, More Improvement. And I love the title number one, um, but it really just helps people think about, uh, from an educational perspective, maybe we've stopped going. We've got to stop talking about all this change. Oh, more change! I'm going to lead change. Oh, I'm the change person. It's like, well, maybe we don't need more change. Maybe we should focus on improvement. And given the complexity of everything, um, actually, uh, when we try to change things, sometimes we make it worse. Even though you're very energized about being the change leader. So I love this idea of uh, really focusing on improvement, that we don't just make things different, but better, and that we're going to do that by thinking uh, more deeply about how to get there. Uh, So I think, yeah, let's change more improvement. Uh, And then a non-education book, it's been around for a couple of years, but I need to keep returning to it, um, uh, called Essentialism. Um, And I think essentialism basically is just this idea of how in our life and work can we pare things down to the most important elements. In education, this feels really hard because, you know, schools are tasked with doing so many things. But I still really recommend this notion of uh, doing less but better in life and in work uh, and being willing to carve out the time, um, you know, what, what that book would say, what is the disciplined pursuit of less look like? And I think in the overwhelm and the overload and the the teacher well-being and the leader well-being challenges we have, I would say less change, more improvement, and then essentialism in our personal life uh, might be uh, an increasing thing that we need to look at.
0: You bet. You mentioned headspace, but I was wondering if there was something else, or or maybe that's it, that you do every day that keeps you well and healthy.
1: Yeah, well... like. um, (laughs) uh, plumbers always have leaky taps, right? I, I might give some advice here, but, uh, I struggle on this one. So I would say what I'm learning is, um, uh, at home having, I got a five-year-old, three-year-old and a one-year-old. So there's something about reading aloud to my kids. That just means that I, I don't have to think about anything else. It's a shared activity. There's a joy in it. Uh, and just kind of rediscovering those books, uh, from our own childhood and those, 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 those timeless narratives. So I'd say, uh, yeah, uh, reading to my kids, and then um, when I have to be away for work and I, I, I'm working with systems elsewhere, um, I would say that kind of um, an audio book um, or something like the Headspace app. Um, you know, there's something about listening, and there's a, there's this, you know, Corey, we've riffed on this before when we kind of first met and talked about podcasts we listened to, but. Um, We as a species have been listening for much longer than we've been reading, and there is this renaissance of being able to engage with deep content through things like podcasts or audiobooks. So I'm discovering that even though often I've been, you know, too weary to kind of To to read and to do uh, some of that deeper thinking, that I can listen and my bandwidth for listening is much greater, Um, but particularly listening to things that, um, you know, a fiction, uh, things that can kind of take me away uh, from necessarily working out um, some of the more complex things associated with my work.
0: You bet. I'm interested to know if there's an organization or a person who's really inspiring you. It could be short-term, someone who recently uh, came in, or if it's been, it could even be someone that you've been following for a long time. Um, somebody who's like really gets you going, that you, you think, um, is doing good work.
1: Yeah. Oh man, there's, there's, there's so many, um, great people doing good work, but I'm just going to go, I'm just going to go super local, um. There's a great school here if you come and visit me in Sydney, and that's an open uh, invitation, uh, Corey, uh, to to anyone listening across the world to your podcast. uh, Come and do a a tourism trip here, and we'll show you some schools. But uh, there's a terrific school in Western Sydney called Blacksill Street, uh, led by Henny Zara, and the team. And... You know, I get the honor of going out there sometimes and they're part of our school network and uh, I get to to do some leading with their senior leaders and we have a meal together. But what's been amazing about that school serving a population of families, most of whom uh, don't speak English at home, uh, some coming from more disadvantaged backgrounds, is the way that they have built the most incredible leadership team. I mean, as a primary school, so elementary school and Canadian speak, um, they, they turn up together, they've teamed together, they've restructured uh, their, their timetable so uh, more of their leadership can be in class time, working side by side. Uh, and they just have this overwhelming sense of we have high expectations and our students uh, will and can learn at the highest level. So, you know, I'm increasingly uh, compelled by school organizations that are building uh, teams uh, and that are within the flexibility that they're able to create within the systems that they work, starting to find ways to build, you know, what I call, you know, learning organizations, um, agile schools, uh, schools that can be self-improving. So I'd say Blackfield Street Primary School, come on out. Uh, we'll, we'll take you out there and you can learn.
0: Uh, yeah, I, uh, I would love to get out. I am, uh, yeah,
1: uh, it, it'll Family come. Family holiday it, time, sorry. <laughs> Just make sure you you don't get excited and come out, you know, in, in, in your uh, summer break, you think, oh, I'm going to go to Australia for summer, you'll find winter here, which yeah. may well be still warmer than sometimes uh, uh, your summer. But yeah, please come out in our summer.
0: Absolutely. Uh, I'd like to, to finish off by by giving people an indication of, let's say they're really interested in this. Let's say that they would like to dip their toe into some of the things you said, learning sprints, and and, and being able to improve their teacher expertise. Where would you direct people to get a bit more information about it?
1: Yeah, terrific. Well, I, I appreciate you even uh, raising it. Um, One of the things we've said from the outset in building uh, this approach is it had to be open source. And uh, so if people go to learning sprints dot com, uh, too hard to uh, to remember, just type that into Google, you'll find our community site there and. um, We've got videos. Uh, there's a very simple tools that you can use to, to craft some discussion with your colleagues, uh, case study videos. Uh, I think one of the best lists of free research uh, in the world uh, for educators where we put research that you could use to inform your uh, learning sprints. So just learningsprints.com um, or you, you can find website and this always sounds terrible to have a website of your own name at uh and that's just a home for all the work that i do and 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 people could uh find stuff there but as an early step you don't have to run a whole sprint uh in our learning sprints we have about 15 tools for discipline dialogue It'd take about 10 to 15 minutes to do with a colleague or as a team and i'd say the first toe in the water would just be to go on the sprint site uh, have a look at the tools and just pick one of the tools that you think you know Uh, This would be a nice way to um, structure the conversation we're going to have as a teaching team or as an instructional coaching session or a staff meeting. Just try it out. And if the the conversation's a little bit better than before, uh, then why don't you try another piece and bit by bit uh, see whether or not you you might want to adapt the sprint model to work in your unique context.
0: I can't thank you enough for uh, making a little bit of time to to speak with me and to to share some of this with all of our listeners. So, so thank you. Thank you, thank hey, you. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. Anytime. The door is open. And uh, wishing you all the best of luck and um, hoping we can get, um, yeah, raise some teacher expertise through our conversation. So thank you.
1: Thanks so much, Corey. It's great to be with you.
0: Thanks for listening to this edition of the Intersection Education Podcast. Just a reminder that you can connect with us on our website, intersectioneducation.com, on Twitter, IntersectionEd, or leave a review on iTunes. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next time.